Hello, everybody. Um, I am kind of nervous, but at the same time, I'm excited because um, I've been on quite a journey this week. <laughs> uh, I, uh, Pastor Lindsay asked me on Sunday um, whether or not to. Uh, like that. Okay. Um, if I would be willing to preach on uh, Sunday today. And uh, at first, of course, I wasn't like too excited about the idea, but I told him I'd pray about it. And um, I prayed about it the rest of that day. And um, my prayer was that if he would give me something that I felt was beneficial or that would contribute, you know, I'm not just going to stand up here and waste your guys' time. So um, Monday morning, I woke up and just immediately, as soon as I woke up, he brought First Peter 4 to mind. And um, everything just started coming together. <clears throat> and all week, I mean, after I've been getting home from work, getting up early in the morning, and just every every day seems to open a new layer of, of stuff. And I had like all these papers all over my floor, and you know, I felt like in the movie they have like all the newspaper clippings, you know, pinned up the thing, and they got the string everywhere, and you just kind of step back, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> so I hope that God is able to do for you guys what He's done for me this week. Because I was telling Pastor Lindsay yesterday, um, I could quit now and, and be happy. I, I've I've learned so much this week just from studying for this. So, um, but I also want to take a second to um, thank Pastor Lindsay for all that um, he's invested in me and um, in our church family because it's mostly because of his ministry and investment in my life that I can even stand here and do this at all. So um, I figured you guys would probably enjoy thanking him as well. So let's take a second to do that. together, I had no idea. It's so much work. So I'm very grateful for all the work that he puts in for us. Alright, so the um, the passage we're going to read is 1 Peter 4, and the subject of the um, of the message, I guess, is the suffering in the life of the believer. That's what it started off as anyway. And uh, every day as I started, you know, trying to create the outline and kind of flesh out the, the insides of it, they kept changing as I kept seeing other things and other things were were um, connecting to it until it, it um, eventually last night I got to the final outline and I stepped back and I was like, I'm going to have to change the title. It's totally different. And I decided to keep the title because um, I kind of want you guys hopefully to go on the same journey I did and start off with suffering and end up somewhere totally different, which I think is what God intended. And that's the glory of God. So um, the title of the, the message is God Disciplines Those He Loves and then slash kind of subtitle. Our God is a consuming fire. So um, what I'm hoping to do today is go through my um, original plan starting off, and then you'll kind of see how it shifts into the other the other plan, um, in that we're looking at suffering as God's discipline, as, as He loves us, and then um, the fact that He's a consuming fire by looking at the end judgment kind of as a contrast and a... a um, uh, not a contrast, but a context of, of the current suffering that we go through now. So uh, let's look at First Peter 4, and we'll read the whole chapter. And we're going to go through a lot of different scriptures today. Alright, so First Peter 4. <clears throat> Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same 
flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief, or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Alright, so in my mind there's kind of three break points in this chapter. And um, the first and the last sections are on suffering. And then there's a section in the middle on how we should live um, in the mind of the suffering and the, in the perspective of all things uh, coming to an end. So what I'd like to do is start with the end judgment and uh, look at what's going to happen at the end of all things as it talks about. And then um, I think that if we work backwards from that, it'll um, help make the sufferings and hardships that we go through now make more sense. So um, the first thing I want to look at is the judgment which is um, in First Peter 4, 7 that we just read. It said the end of all things is near. So um, also one thing I want to look at is um, I think partly what one of the reasons why we have a hard time understanding the struggles and hardships that we go through is because we lose perspective um, on how short this life is, that things are coming to an end. Um, all things are going to be judged and destroyed. And um, we just because tomorrow came and went, and last year came and went, we just automatically assume that tomorrow's going to come and go, and next year's going to come and go. Let's look at Psalm 39. Okay, verse 4. It says, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. So, um, before I was asked to share this morning, I was in that uh, the week before, and, and I thought that that fit well because, um, just as God was having to remind me that you know all this is very temporary. You know, like I said, it's a vapor. Um, we can get caught up in the things that are right in front of us and feel like it's um, a really big deal. It's not really a big deal. So anyway, the end of all things is near. Even if it's not the end judgment, our lives 
are only a vapor anyway. So, um, so at this judgment, all men will be judged. The unrighteous will be punished, and the righteous will be rewarded. And that's something that we also don't think about. But let's go to Malachi chapter 3. This is also another passage I was in a couple weeks ago. That's the book right before the New Testament starts. Alright, so he characterizes this judgment in verse um, 2 of 3. It says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. And if you um, move down to 3, 13. No, not 13. 3.18 Okay. It says, And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, because those who serve God, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall, and you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. But the part that I was going for there is at the beginning of chapter 4. And it says, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire. So the judgment is by fire. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a similar thing. This is for the believer. That was for the lost man. Alright, and then if we go to verse 10. Let's see. Okay. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, with a capital D, that's the day of the Lord, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So the theme that's kind of um, emerging here is the fire. The judgment is going to be by fire. Um, the things that are uh, perishable, like wood, uh, hay, straw, stubble, all the things that we mentioned already is going to burn up. Uh, the things that aren't going to burn up are the things that aren't perishable, like the gold, silver, and costly stones. So, um, and I think I learned this from Pastor Lindsay as well, but the, the difference there is everything that's going to be... Um, that has to do with man and, and sin, the fleshly nature, everything that is of this world that's tainted by sin and death is going to be destroyed. Um, and only the things that are the works of God are going to remain that are, that are of His glory, that are of His origin. So um, the wood, hay, and straw are the works that we've done in our own strength and of the flesh because they originated from us. They're sinful. The things that originate from God are the things that are righteous. Those are the things of the gold and silver and costly stones that will not burn up and they will um, last forever to bring glory to God. So, 
that goes with the um, passage in Malachi that we just read. The lost man himself, his works, and everything that he is, is of the sinful nature because he hasn't been regenerated. So he's completely stubble and he will be burned up completely. So um, that's why in Revelation it talks about the, the um, all who aren't found in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. So, okay, so we've got the two judgments. All right, so then we'll, we'll kind of expand it out a little bit and say everything, not just people, but everything that is tainted by sin and death will be destroyed by fire, the unmaking. So let's turn to Hebrews 12. Let's look at 26 through 29. It says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So, we'll keep going. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And that's where I pulled the, the title from. So, uh, another thing we can look at is Second Peter 3. I'm sure you're familiar with this one. And that's verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Alright, and this is this is a cool one. This is one that I, I had been studying in Habakkuk, which is not normally my study, um, a couple weeks ago. And it's hard to find. It's one of the minor prophets if you want to turn over there. And uh, this just hit me when I was reading it. And um, I, I know why now, because I needed it for this. But in verse 13 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, it says, Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I thought that was a really uh, well-packaged way of, of putting what I'm trying to say, is that if we work in our own strength, we're working with wood, hay, and straw, and we're just piling things on to the pile to be burned. Um, because after everything is judged and, and burned up, it's not of the Lord. Uh, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's all that's going to be left. Amen. So, um, when I got to that point, I was like, okay, well then, if that's all that's going to be left, let's look and see what the glory of God is that's going to be left. And I remembered um, there was a uh, pastor named Steve Lawson. I don't know much about him, but he was at a conference of John MacArthur's once in, in a panel. And they were talking about the glory of God, and he gave such a good answer. I've, I've gone back and listened to it several times. But I'm paraphrasing it here, but he said, God's glory is all of his attributes working together in perfection. So I'm going to use that definition throughout the rest of the messages, the definition of God's glory. is all of his attributes working together in perfection. So uh, Mr. Kelly did a message uh, several months ago about the attributes of God, and it was so cool because he gave out that paper with all the attributes and it's like you think about superheroes and stuff and they're nothing but you look at that and you're like there's there's no loophole there's nothing it's, everything is there you can't defeat this God he's got everything and so um, you think about all the attributes some of them if they were to be in us and they would clash so we couldn't have all of them together but he's able to have all of those attributes his mercy his love justice 
graciousness, omnipotence, omnipresence, um, all-knowing, autonomy, everything that makes God who he is, they all work together perfectly, and that's what makes up his glory. So I was talking to Pastor Lindsay um, yesterday when I was preparing, and um, there was a couple of things that, that um, we went through together, and it was I so benefited from that time that I spent with him yesterday. And um, I, I was originally going with that it was God's work that gives him glory, but he made a point to say that it's um, his attributes and his works together make his glory. So it's all of who he is, and then all that he does that flows from who he is. They're both part of the same coin. They go together. Let's look at um, Psalm 86, verse 10. And it says, there's lots of verses like this in the Psalms. I, I picked out a couple, but uh, we won't go through all of them. We'll just do this one. But there's lots of different versions of, the, of ways to say this in the Psalms. But this one in particular says, For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. So he's glorifying for who he is. He's great. And then he's also glorifying for his marvelous deeds. And he alone is God. So um, at the end of time, when everything else is burnt up, the only thing that's going to be left is everything that has to do with the nature and the works of God. The only things that are perfect and imperishable, everything that's imperfect and perishable are going to be burnt up. So, to go farther into the glory, using that, that theme of his attributes working together in perfection, this is where the study started to shift into more of his glory, and I think that's really where all of this ends up anyway, but... Um, I looked at three different categories um, that God's glory is manifest to us. That's the work of God for us, the work of God in us, and the work of God through us. So we'll look at each of those. But let's turn to Titus 2. I think that passage really sums up that concept well. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, right here the three, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So... The work for us is he gave himself for us. And then the work that he's doing in us is to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. And then the work that he's doing through us is eager to do what is good. So look at each of those. Um, first of all, the work of God for us. This is so cool to me. I hope it's cool to you too. But um, just looking through how if you look at it in the perspective of um, his attributes and his works coming together, and perfection, the work of God for us is, is the best manifestation of that ever. It's pretty cool. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2. It's a pretty good way of, of saying it. We've read this many times, but read it again. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 5. <clears throat> Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. 
He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's the, there's the part right there is that all of these three things all end up pointing to the glory of God. So this is the part I thought was so cool when, it, when I made that connection. I, I wrote it out, but um, I was just tearing up last night thinking about how amazing this is. But um, the work of the cross is the ultimate manifestation of God's glory. It is all of his attributes working together in absolute perfection. It's completely loving, completely merciful, completely gracious, completely autonomous, because he made the covenant by himself and with himself. It's completely just. It completely satisfies his wrath against sin. It's omniscient. All secrets laid bare, all sin paid for. It's omnipotent. It's able to save completely those who come to God through him. It's omnipresent. It's available everywhere at all times for all who repent and believe. And the list goes on. It's the apex of all history, of all eternity. It's the good news we are privileged and honored to share to a lost and dying world, Jesus Christ and him crucified to the glory of God the Father. And I was just, I, that was just so cool to make that connection, but Amen. I put in there, um, by repenting from our sinful works, placing our faith in the work of Christ for us, our works of wood, hay, and straw that would be burned up on that day are exchanged for the incomparable riches of Christ that will endure for eternity to the glory of God. So that's the positional truth of, of our salvation. That's the thing that keeps us from being burnt up. Um, just like the guy in First Corinthians, um, he was saved, but all of his works perished. But he himself was saved because positionally um, he was tied in with the works of Christ. His works were replaced with Christ's works. So he won't receive the judgment for those works because um, he has Christ on his behalf. But practically in our daily walk, we have to choose between works of perishable materials, the wood, hay, and straw, the works of the flesh, and the works that are imperishable, gold, silver, costly stones, works of the Spirit. This is where the work of God in us and the work of God through us come in. So we just looked at the work of God for us. Now we're going to look at the work of God in us. This is where the suffering comes in. And this is, to me, it was funny because it started off being about suffering, and it just kept getting pushed down the list until it got to here. And uh, by the time I got through all that other stuff, I was like, man, this is so cool. And I'm like, what was I even, oh yeah, suffering doesn't even matter anymore, you know. And that's what I think you get to to where Paul got to, that our suffering doesn't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed. And so, um, anyway, that's why I kept the title the same, is because that's kind of the journey that I got on, and I hope that that hopefully you guys will get there too. But... um, I put, for the work of God in us, uh, God uses suffering in our lives to refine us. He removes sin and forms Christ in us, allowing us to participate in His divine nature and share in His glory. Okay, so we've got the work of Christ for us. We, we um, are saved by repenting of our works and taking His works in our place. But that's Him working separately from us. <clears throat> and we're tying into that by accepting it uh, as a free gift. But now He wants to... Um, allow us to share in His glory, just as we'll be able to, to enjoy the rest of eternity um, being in His glory and rejoicing in it. Um, this is the amazing part, is that He wants us to be able to share with Him in His glory. And that's where the time between now and when we die comes in. Um, remember, there's the two types, or the two parts of His glory, His who He is and what He does, His attributes and His works. And I think we'll see here that He allows us to participate in both of those 
parts of his glory and for eternity we'll be able to share in that. So the work of God in us, when he refines us by removing sin through suffering and forming Christ in us through suffering, um, that allows us to participate in his divine nature and share in his glory in that, in that aspect. <clears throat> so there are two kinds of suffering. This is something that Pastor Lindsay was, was really cool and helped me yesterday. And if you see anything that's like alliterated, that's stuff that I got from him. <laughs> He's so good at that. He's like, you could do this and this. And I'm like, you're right. And I'm like, did you just come up with that? And he was, anyway. um, so there's two kinds of suffering. You got suffering for wrongdoing, and then you got suffering wrongfully. So let's look at um, the first Peter passage again. Okay. So, let's see, in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, For it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So God calls us to suffering. It's not something that um, he passively allows and, and um, allows us to go through bad things or hardships or suffering. It's something that um, he ordains, as we see at the end of First Peter 4. It says, um, those who suffer according to God's will. And the reason why he calls us to go through these times of suffering and hardship, um, there's two different types that we saw there. There's one for suffering because um, of wrongdoing, and then there's one where you suffer even though you didn't do anything wrong, that's the suffering wrongfully. So, we got the two kinds, um, the suffering for wrongdoing is discipline, and the suffering wrongfully is divine. The suffering for wrongdoing, um, the desired result of that, the intention of God is that we would repent. And then the suffering wrongfully, the desired result that God wants us to have is to rejoice. All right, And then the result of suffering for wrongdoing, if the goal is carried out that God intended, um, is for Christ to be formed in us in greater measure, uh, because the discipline takes away our sin and allows Christ to be more formed in us as a result of that. And the suffering, uh, then the suffering for wrongdoing leads to us suffering more wrongfully, because we'll be more like Christ, which will precipitate uh, persecution. And um, once we are persecuted because we are like Christ and we're joining with Him um, in His suffering, then His glory is manifest in us. So let's look at the wrongdoing first. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Okay. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. 
and your hardship is discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, and make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So when we look through um, there, the goal of the punishment, or it's not punishment, that's what I wanted to, to say next, was that in the NIV it translates that one verse, verse 6, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Um, that was one thing that we um, talked about yesterday, that the Lord doesn't punish us because Christ has already taken all of the wrath and the penalty for our sin on the cross. So God can't punish us again. Um, so that... <laughs> This morning when I was finishing my notes, I just happened to notice that. I read it all week, and I was like, ah, there's punish in there. So I was like, that goes against what I was trying to say. So I looked it up in the Greek, and there's only one word that that can be translated as, and that's scourge. So the, the NIV translated that wrong. Um, so I was like, okay, well, scourge, that doesn't sound much better. But then I remembered um, a ser- uh, sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones that I was listening to on Romans earlier in the week. And um, it was a totally different subject, but he had mentioned that um, in biblical times, the way that they separated the wheat from the chaff when they were threshing wheat was they would, they would uh, hit it with flails and thresh the, the wheat to separate the wheat from the chaff. So I think that fits with the passage better, is that what he's trying to do here is um, get rid of all of the sin in our hearts and isolate the, the spirit and the new man inside of us. So he's scourging us not to punish us or to destroy us, but to try to separate out um, the things in us that are of sin. So, um, and I think that that is further supported by the last two verses of that section we just read. It says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So the goal of it is to strengthen us and to heal us. Um, so, and I... I um, I thought about an analogy of like a coach. I think it's kind of similar to where um, a lot of times I've never done football, but I've seen them do the drills and stuff and the movies and everything. And they'll just push them to the very limits. I mean, and, and it's grueling, it's hard. And a lot of times the, the team members are like grumbling about it and stuff like that. But the coach isn't doing it to destroy or to punish the team members. It's because he knows that there's a big game coming up and if they don't train and get ready, then they're going to get slaughtered. So... I think of it kind of like that. God um, is preparing us for that day of judgment. Um, He knows what's coming, and it's going to be that testing by fire. Everything that's not of Him is going to be burnt up, and we might think that um, we're doing all right, but He sees the true state of our hearts, and He knows if we need to be um, if we need to be trained, and we all need need that to continue to um, form the new man inside of us and and get rid of the old. So that's the suffering for wrongdoing. And that suffering for wrongdoing, as he is uh, removing the sin from our lives and uh, forming Christ in us, that allows us to be able to um, identify with Christ in his sufferings 
because when we suffer, it won't be because we've done something wrong, but because we've done something right, and we'll endure persecution for identifying with Christ in his name. And that was back in, if we go back to the first Peter chapter 4, we look at verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And that's the one kind of suffering. And then uh, if you skip down to verse 12, the other section about suffering, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. And a lot of versions will say fiery trial. And I like to think of that as um, kind of a pre-trial. He continually puts us through uh, fiery trials so that we can see what parts of us are going to burn up and what aren't, so we can see in advance how we do. And then um, if we see, if we go through a struggle and we're like, man, I don't like how I performed, you know, you're like, I, I expected to do better in that, you know, then we can see an area that um, that at the end of, uh, when, when we get judged, we'll be burnt up and we can make changes. Um, and then also on the other side, we can look at it and say, man, I did a lot better to that than I thought. You know, we can see that that's something that God is working through us, and that's an area that won't get burnt up. So I think that's, that's very kind of him to um, allow us to go through those sufferings and trials so that we can see in advance and not be surprised when we get to that day. Amen. So anyway, we keep reading. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So, <clears throat> there it's pretty clear that once we um, suffer discipline, we're done with sin, then that allows us to have more of Christ formed in us, then we are um, persecuted, insulted because of the name of Christ, we're blessed, and the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. So, um, by going through that process of going through the one type of suffering for wrongdoing, then we can then suffer um, for uh, being wrongfully treated um, along with Christ. And then by getting through that process, we'll be able to um, participate and share in His glory by sharing in His nature um, in that way. Amen. So, that's the work of God in us. And the work of God in us prepares us so that He can work through us. So, you get through all that process, and then that allows you to go to the next step. Not only does he work in us, but he's able to work through us as we decrease and he increases in us. And uh, I put the more we allow him to work in us, the more he's able to work through us. And that is in Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty. And it says, "In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay." Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So there you see again the gold and silver and the wooden clay, the things that are going to be perishable and the things that aren't. And then it talks about a man cleansing himself from the ignoble things, uh, which is the suffering, the uh, suffering for wrongdoing. God prepares us for that. And then once we're through that, or we're never through with it, but once we grow in that area, we'll be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So he's able to work through us at that point, 
and to do those good works that we read about in uh, Titus chapter 2, that he did all of the work of salvation because he desired a people that would uh, be eager to do good works. So, if you remember back to our original definition of God's glory, it was all that who he is and all that he does, the, all of his attributes working together in perfection. So, when he works in us, he conforms us into the image of his son so that we can participate in that divine nature and identify with him in his nature and, and share with him in his glory in that way, that one part of his glory, who he is. And then through the work of God through us, he's able to work through us, and in that way we can share with him in his glory for the works, the two parts of his glory um, at the end of time. When he works through us, we will operate in his strength, his wisdom, his timing, and his direction producing works of gold, silver, and costly stones that will not burn up on the day of judgment, allowing us to participate in his works and thus share in his glory. So let's look at First Peter chapter 4. Go back to that again. And this is the part in between the two suffering sections. Um, if you look at verse 8, it says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. See, that it comes from God, it's not from him. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, through his strength, not his own. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So when people look at us doing those things, um, they can see that it comes from God because He calls us to do things that um, require us to be stronger than we are, that we have to use His strength or more patient or more kind or more loving, all of these different things, uh, more hospitable, things that stretch us beyond our capabilities so that we have to rely on Him. And when people see us do them, they praise God because they know that it didn't come from us, it came from Him. And uh, those are the gold and silver and costly stones we can participate in those works, the works of God through us. And I put in here, I think it's important to know that um, it's not him glorifying us on that day for those works. And it's not a joint glory like we have to work together. But it's his glory alone. It says there, to him, in all things God may be praised to Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. It's not a joint glory. It's only his glory. And we get to share in it. It's all his works that he's doing through us. So he shouldn't have to share his glory for it because it's all him. It's not anything to do with us. But he chooses to let us in on sharing that glory. We don't deserve that, therefore it's grace. And that's why in, in uh, verse 10, it says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. All the works that we are able to do in the Spirit are all grace because they're all God working through us, and we don't deserve to be a part of it. So, uh, in conclusion... To wrap all that back up, um, God uses suffering in our lives to conform us into the image of His Son so that we can join with Him in His suffering and share in His glory. This allows us to be used by God so He can work through us, producing works to His glory that will not burn up on that day. For our God is the consuming fire. And I figured a, a, a good passage to end on is Romans 8. I know we've all read that so many times, but I think going through all this might give a different light on it. verse 18. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. If you skip down to verse 28, it says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And here it just reiterates that it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. It says, Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And once again, they're dense in glory. So, um, as I went through this, um, it was cool to see how my my view shifted from the the study on suffering to all the way over to the glory of God. Everything, no matter which way you took it, every little rabbit trail you went down always ended in the glory of God. So, um, I hope that all of us together can um, say along with Paul, verse eighteen, where he says, "I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing." with the board that will be revealed in us. So, anyway, thank you guys. Amen. Amen.